Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of starvation and cannibalism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hank stood very, very still as he raised his Polaroid camera. All he needed to do was grab a shot of the deer. But when the camera clicked, the doe's head jerked up and she bounded off. Hank sighed, yanking the Polaroid out of the slot. He waved it around, then watched the image slowly appear. Mm, It was just the deer's hind legs disappearing into the brush. He and his wife had just moved from the city to the woodsy town of Truckee, wanting to live more simply in retirement. They deserved it, after all. They'd worked hard in their lives. It was time to kick back and relax, take up hobbies. Hank had chosen nature photography, but he was realizing that a Polaroid camera was the wrong choice of equipment. It was loud. So far, he had scared away more animals than he'd captured. Hank lumbered along, looking for his next shot. The trail ahead was sunny, curving around a large rock and into a dense patch of tree cover. Hank reasoned that scenery was maybe a better place to start. You can't scare off a trail. The Polaroid shot out of the slot. Hank waved it around to hurry its development, and the picture slowly came into focus. Trees clarified, the rock's details appeared, but some mass was clouding up the center of the path. At first, he thought he must have put his thumb in front of the lens or something, but as the picture became clearer, he realized the mass in the trail center wasn't a smudge. It was a figure, a woman in a long, soaked dress. Her stringy hair hung about her shoulders, framing a gaunt face, and her wide eyes looked hungry. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, we explore the grisly history behind Donner Memorial State Park in Truckee, California. The park's pristine, tranquil beauty makes it a destination for avid campers and hikers. But this is not your average nature-filled retreat. One of the most unspeakable tragedies of the 1800s occurred in these majestic mountains. It's the site where a group of pioneers, known as the Donner Party, became trapped in a prison of ice and were forced to perform unspeakable acts to survive. Coming up, we'll meet the Donners. Located off Interstate 80 in California, about 10 miles from Lake Tahoe, Donner Memorial State Park is nestled in some of the country's most jaw-dropping landscapes. Every year, thousands of tourists flock there to enjoy its wild beauty. 
The park contains many trails, an emigrant museum, and the beautiful Donner Lake, surrounded by towering trees. It might be hard to believe that a place so tranquil is eternally damned. But it is said that the energy of a place, even a stunning one, can be changed forever by tragedy. And that's exactly what happened to Donner Memorial State Park in the winter of 1846. The previous spring, 87 people from the Donner and Reed families embarked on a journey from Springfield, Illinois, heading west to California. Brothers George and Jacob Donner had carefully planned the route with James Reed. But poor leadership and a series of missteps led the men to make a few errors. The first was the decision to take the Hastings Cutoff, an untested shortcut that put the travelers behind schedule. Infighting, heavy wagons, and exhausted animals slowed them down further. By the time they traipsed through the Sierra Nevadas, winter had already begun, and with it, a fatal snowstorm. Tamsin's hands trembled as she rang out the rag. The snow she'd melted onto it had been warm just moments ago, but the wind had put the fire out, and now the cold, wet cloth was stinging her fingers. Still, she squeezed the water into her husband George's mouth, moistening his dried lips. But he didn't move. He hadn't for days. He just lay there, a chain of obligation fastened to her ankle. Tamsin had been against this journey from the start. She'd been happy in Illinois. They'd be well off with a sprawling home and happy children. She had been a teacher there, but he wanted more. He insisted on California, and Tamsin could say nothing. Wives are meant to nod politely, even as they watch their husband's arrogance lead 80-plus souls into hell. And then, a month ago, hope had come. A rescue group had broken through the snow. George had been bad off even then, so she'd sent her children with the rescuers to brave the wintry pass and get out of this nightmare. Take the children, she said. She'd stay, waiting out starvation, with him. Because that's what wives were supposed to do. They stood by their husbands, even when it doomed them. Now George was dying, and she'd be all alone. The whole thing had been selfish of him, but that was George, always on to the next thing, with no thought for anyone but himself. Her mouth twisted in bitterness. Blame was the only feeling stronger than hunger. The wind shuddered the tent, blowing open its flap. With it, a torrent of snow flurries blew inside. Outside, Tamsin could see the dim sunlight shining on the oppressive white woods. The evergreens were tall and thick and laden with snow. Tamsin thought that it looked like a cage of ice. She rose slowly to pull the flap shut and looked at George. First, he shuddered. Then he lay completely still, his eyes open and unseeing. She held her hand under his nostrils. No breath. He had died. After all that, she had nearly missed it. She'd expected more of a spectacle, as George always liked attention. She should have felt sad, but all she felt was cold and the relentless throb of hunger swelling her belly. And there was no question, 
the hunger was worse. When they'd arrived in this godforsaken place, the Donner and Reed family spread out through the woods to find shelter from the storm. They found cabins and erected tents, hoping to wait out the punishing snow. But it never stopped. No one had enough stores to last them through winter, and when the lake froze, their supply of fish disappeared. Tamsin's family had rationed well, finally using bark to hinder off the dreadful hunger, but others had resorted to other means. Tamsin had seen the gnawed remains of corpses in the woods, the teeth marks on bone. Now here she was with no meat but George's corpse. Tamsin was horrified to feel her mouth watering. It had been so long since she'd had protein. Her eyes filled with tears, and she clasped a hand to her mouth in horror. No, George took her former life from her. She wouldn't let him change her in that way, too. She had to get out of here before the last of whoever she had been disappeared. Tamsin gathered some things and set out into the windy, snow-logged woods. She moved slowly, heading west toward the setting sun. She wasn't sure if she was trying to walk her way out or find another family. She just knew she had to go. But the all-white woods quickly turned her around. Everything looked the same. The bright white snow blinded her, even in the fading light. She walked for hours until finally she saw a sight that made her weary heart skip with relief. A cabin with smoke streaming out of its chimney. Tamsin hurried toward it and knocked. Its doors swung open and a man filled its frame. Louis Kiesberg. Tamsin knew Louis, a funny man, always quick with a joke. And he looked, well, his cheeks held none of the sharp sallowness that hers did. Tamsin slowed her approach. His appearance bothered her. Why was he so healthy looking? She stumbled, almost falling. Tamsin glanced back at what tripped her, seeing a dark object stuck out from a snow pile. It was a human leg, half of one. Its flesh had been cut away. Tamsin stared at it dully, trying to understand what she was seeing. This leg had been meddled with. It had been carved like a cut of meat. She felt something grab her hair and yank her head back. A searing pain ripped through her scalp. She looked up to see Lewis's face. His cracked, dry lips surrounded rows of stained brown teeth. His eyes were desperate as he whispered that he was sorry. Dear Lord, forgive him, he cried. Tamsin struggled, but her frail body was too weak. She pleaded, telling Lewis that there was a body not so far from here. George. He was already dead, she said. Take him instead. Lewis wasn't listening. His arm trembled as he lifted an axe. She closed her eyes, trying to bring herself far away from the snowy hell to a place she last knew joy. She thought of her children playing outside in Illinois, their happy faces turned up to the warm sun, waving to her as she watched. And then she heard the swoosh of the axe fly through the air. History sees Tamsin Donner as a hero, 
She sent her children ahead with one of the first rescue parties that broke through the snow and therefore ensured their survival. She stayed behind, dutifully attending to her dying husband. Tragically, her body was never found, perhaps because it was slowly digesting in the belly of one of the Donner Party survivors, Louis Kiesberg. Kiesberg admitted to eating Tamsin, but denied killing her. By Kiesberg's account, Tamsin arrived at his cabin after George died, but passed away in her sleep. It was only then that he used her body to stave off his hunger. According to rescuer Thomas Fallon, Kiesberg described her flesh as the best he'd ever tasted. The Donner and Reed family spent five months in the snow. Of the 87 travelers who went into the mountain, only about half would come out. Those who survived lived on the sparse provisions they'd brought with them. When those were gone, they turned to their livestock and then their family pets until they had nothing to fill their bodies but the corpses of their kin. Coming up, just because the park is closed doesn't mean you're alone. Listeners, looking for something a little spooky to dig into? Then check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Superstitions. Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this eerie new series. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why do black cats represent witchcraft? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem mystical or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the podcast series Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In April 1847, the California Star printed an article that would shock the world. It was an account from Donner Party rescuer Thomas Fallon that spoke of starving survivors consuming brains and detailed grisly scenes of half-eaten corpses of men, women, and children. The article described children eating parents and mothers eating husbands. It went so far as to insist that when offered food, some of the survivors turned it away preferring their newfound meat source. Survivors such as Tamsin Donner's daughter, Eliza, were disgusted by the article and called it sensationalist and misleading. Other survivors like 12-year-old Patty Reed were quick to assert that the Reed family were the only ones who managed to survive without resorting to cannibalism. The Star's article was certainly appalling, but the Donner Party story didn't need exaggeration to stand the test of time. To be starved to the point of cannibalism was horrific enough to keep even the sturdiest of minds up at night. Bernie was hungry and bored. He longed to be in his living room playing Super Mario Brothers with a beer in hand, but he'd only just started his ranger shift so he decided to entertain himself by annoying his partner, David. The guy was meditating on the floor of the ranger station, 
which Bernie found just flat-out weird. He started cracking kindling sticks to disrupt David's concentration, but found it frustrating when he didn't even wince. Ugh. Bernie was only here because he hadn't been ready to go to college. He decided to take a gap year. He needed the break. He deserved the break. But his mom said he couldn't just wallow about her house playing N64. He had to get a job. So here he was, the only place that would take him. It wasn't ideal for Bernie. The woods creeped him out. No, Donner Memorial State Park creeped him out. How could it not? People were like eaten here. The thought made him glance out the station's tiny single window at the darkening sky. Night had fallen quickly. From his vantage point, all he could see was the park visitor center and woods. Woods as far as the eye could see. As the sun dwindled, the trees looked like a blanket of darkness lying beneath the bright expanse of sky. He shivered. Bernie reached toward the room's tiny fireplace, grabbing another kindling stick. Perhaps if he cracked a bigger one, David would finally notice. Bernie grinned when he saw David frown. This was their first weekend working together, and Bernie didn't really care for David. David was all hippy-dippy, one with nature and all that. David wanted to be here. Bernie cracked a stick again. David's eyes finally flew open, and he gave an exasperated, Dude! Bernie shrugged and apologized, but he couldn't help feeling smug. But soon, Bernie's stomach growled, loudly. He always ate his snacks right when he got on shift, and right around 7 p.m., he started to get hungry again. Maybe he'd have to go to the vending machine. Who was he kidding? Of course he'd go to the vending machine. Bernie glared at David as the guy started humming. No way. Bernie jumped to his feet and grabbed the radio. He told David he was going to get a snack, taking care not to ask if David wanted anything. Moments later, Bernie stood in front of the colorful rows of chips and candy, debating. Snickers or Twizzlers? Or... Oh, rad. They had fun dip. Although maybe he should be good and get pretzels. He'd put on some weight since he started here. His radio buzzed. Bernie grabbed the receiver from his belt. It was Jessica, another ranger. She told them someone needed to go clean the Pioneer Monument. There's graffiti on it. Bernie groaned. If he had to clean up one more Nirvana tag, he'd lose it. He'd get David to do it, so he could have the ranger station to himself to eat his pretzels in peace. The thought made him grin. All right, maybe he'd get the fun dip. This night had really turned around. He should treat himself. But when Bernie stuck his head back in the station, David ignored him. Like, completely. He wouldn't even open his eyes. Bernie asked again, but David's humming grew louder, drowning Bernie out. Bernie seethed. His radio crackled again, and Jessica's voice asked Bernie if he was there yet. Bernie took a calming breath and answered it. Be right there, he said through gritted teeth. Bernie stomped down the pathway that led to the memorial. It was dark, but the sky wasn't fully black yet. 
it still had that bluish hue from the dusk's last glow. He slogged a bucket of water, a rag, and a bottle of graffiti remover. The park had closed a few hours ago, giving the place an abandoned feeling. As Bernie walked, a light breeze rustled the trees around him, creating a whispering sound. He looked up at the towering pines. High above him, he could see the very tip of an impressive mountain in the distance. Okay, it was pretty here. It wasn't such a bad gig sometimes. The wind stopped, but Bernie could still hear a rustling. He stared up at the trees in confusion and cocked his head. It sounded almost like crying. The balmy evening air suddenly felt cold. His arms were covered in goosebumps, but he brushed it off. The monument with graffiti stood at the end of a paved pathway, surrounded by a wide circle. Three bronze figures sat atop it, a man, woman, and child. The man shielded his eyes, as if bravely looking toward his future, but the woman cowered behind him, with a baby in her arms and a terrified child at her heels. Bernie waved his flashlight at its base. Take the children was written in red paint. Bernie shivered. Jeez, the graffiti looked kinda like blood. He sprayed it with the graffiti remover and started scrubbing. A sobbing sound made Bernie whip around, but there was no one behind him. He was positive he'd heard someone crying, but the forest was silent. Pin drop silent. The fresh mountain air suddenly felt heavy, almost thick. Bernie stood slowly, his hands shaking. A glance at the graffiti told him he wasn't even halfway done, but he suddenly wanted to be back at the station with David and his stupid humming. Bernie stiffened. Someone was humming. Bernie whipped around, expecting to see David. Instead, a shivering woman stood in front of the monument. Her clothes were soaked and her lower lip quivered. Stringy hair hung along her shoulders. She yelled desperately to him, asking if he would take her children. Bernie froze, confused. Had this mom drawn on the monument? She looked totally unhinged. His anxiety pricked as she stood there, staring. He wasn't paid enough to handle crazies. He grabbed his radio. But when he looked up, the woman had inexplicably moved ten feet and was standing directly in front of him. Her bloodshot eyes peered earnestly into his. Bernie could feel the sadness coming off of her in waves, like a static energy prickling his skin. And that smell, rancid and rotten. He gagged, backing away. The woman grabbed his wrist, asking again to please, please take the children. Bernie tugged his arm from her, but her grip was unrelenting. Suddenly, his stomach growled. The woman's face immediately filled with pity. She lunged forward, her arms outstretched, to wrap Bernie in a tight embrace. She whispered that she was hungry too. Bernie felt her bony arms encircle him. His heart 
pounded as her frail form gripped him tighter and tighter until he couldn't breathe. He gasped for air, trying to push her off, but her hold strengthened, wrapping around him like a cage of bones. And then, without warning, she released him. Bernie staggered backwards and ran. His heavy legs moved as fast as they could. His chest burned. Finally, he reached the ranger station door. But before he flew inside, he looked back. He was certain that he'd see the strange corpse woman standing there, watching him. But all he saw was the Pioneer Monument high up against the night sky. The bronze people that sat at its top stared down at him. It might have been a trick of the darkness, but he was sure that the woman no longer cowered behind the man. Instead, she stood straight beside him, pointing in the opposite direction, as if begging him to go back the way they came. The Pioneer Monument honors the people who lost their lives in the winter of 1847. It's a bronze statue standing at 22 feet tall to reflect the height of the snowfall that trapped the Donner Party in an icy hell. Visitors to Donner Lake claim that the ghostly image of a woman in 19th century clothing appeared in some of their vacation photos. Many believe this is Tamsin Donner, doomed to forever roam the woods of her demise. Complaints of overwhelming sadness and chills are common near the monument. This could be explained easily enough. Walking around the park where so many lost their lives in such a horrific way, no doubt gives most people chills. But electromagnetic field detectors, a tool ghost hunters use to detect spirits, have had abnormally high readings at Pioneer Rock and at the settlers' former campsites. Even after 150 years later, it seems the tormented souls of Donner Lake's woods still want us to know the horrible story of what happened there. Coming up, a rest stop isn't always for rest. Now back to the story. History looks at the Donner Party with a mix of sympathy and disgust. We can't imagine the horrible dilemma parents had to face. They could either let their children starve or feed them the only sustenance available, the bodies of their fallen friends and relatives. But those who survived were doomed to live out their days with the taste of human flesh on their tongues. They are deserving of our sympathy, but that doesn't mean they are all without blame. Jacob and George Donner and James Reed's arrogance led their families into a nightmare. The Donner Party's first mistake started with a book, The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. Written by Lansford Hastings, the guide references a route called the Hastings Cutoff, claiming that it would save travelers at least 300 miles on the California Trail. But Hastings had never attempted the route himself. Seasoned traveler James Clayman, a friend of James Reed, warned Reed not to take an untraversed cutoff, but his warnings fell on deaf ears. It may have been a more direct route, but a combination of the group's heavy wagons, untraveled terrain, and poor trail markings put the Donner Party more than a month behind schedule. Additionally, they led their oxen graze for days before attempting to pass through the Sierras, 
pushing them even further into the depths of winter. By the time they trekked through the mountains, a vicious snowstorm was ready to bear down on them. The Donner Party's dead haunt the grounds of Donner Memorial State Park. But perhaps what haunts those who hear their tale is knowing it could have been avoided. As soon as something romantic came on, Kayla leaned over from the passenger seat to change the radio station. She hated when Andy had romance on the mind. It made him kind of touchy. Soon, she found a peppy top 40 jam. Perfect. She glanced at Andy behind the wheel. He hadn't noticed. He was too busy inspecting his hair in the rear view. Then he saw her looking and winked. Kayla looked away out the window, ignoring him. The imposing pines of the Sierra Nevada mountains blew by. The velvety midnight sky above it made everything seem so big. Portland was naturey, but this was a whole different experience. The grandeur of the landscape made her feel small, insignificant, just like Andy. She cracked the window, letting the fresh, cool air hit her in the face. Kayla and Andy had been together since college. Same freshman dorm, same friend group, same city after college, same apartment, same, same, same. But somehow, she just couldn't end it. Each time she got the courage to break things off, he'd managed to talk her out of it. They're destined for greatness, he'd say with a wink. And then she'd wonder how she could have doubted it. She'd think about how dumb she was for not seeing it. Until more weeks passed, and they fell into their routine of the same. Andy telling her what to do, and Kayla nodding along, like he knew everything. And now, here they were, on their way to Lake Tahoe to spend time with their group of friends. Friends who ooh and awed about what a great couple they were, while Andy soaked up the attention like their relationship was his accomplishment. Out the window, a sign announced their impending pass of Donner Memorial State Park. She'd forgotten they'd be passing it. She pointed and told Andy they were in Donner Party Land. Andy said, oh yeah, but Kayla could tell he didn't know what it meant. When in doubt, Andy always said he knew, even when he didn't. She filled him in, telling him a bunch of pioneers got stranded here in the winter and had to eat each other. She'd written an article about it, she reminded him. Manifest Destiny Today. It was about how we always think we deserve better for ourselves, she said. Kayla stopped talking to consider the article. It had proposed that the manifest destiny of yesteryear is the white privileged entitlement of today. It might seem like aspiration, but without humility, it can lead you into ruin. The article had been great, but Andy hadn't read it. He said he'd get to it, but never had. He was so busy, he claimed. Not so busy that he couldn't spend hours online looking for the perfect pair of boat shoes, though. Andy quickly changed the subject before she had a chance to go on. They should make a pit stop, he said. He had to go for like an hour. Kayla sighed. Andy hated talking about things he didn't know about. 
They parked in front of the Donner Park's visitor center and hopped out. Kayla looked around uneasily. Writing about the Donner Party was one thing. Standing on the ground where they died was another. She could hear the faint zooming of the highway not far away, but the thick woods surrounding the center muffled it like a cold, dark blanket. She shivered. If she told Andy it gave her the creeps, he'd give her that over-exaggerated pitying look and tell her he'd protect her. She hated that. Kayla stepped into the deserted restroom. She was surprised the visitor center even had the bathrooms open. She walked into a stall and shut the door. Kayla froze. Someone else had just come in. She flushed and stepped out. But there was no one there. She looked under the stalls for a pair of feet, but she didn't see any. She frowned, a little nervous. She was sure she heard someone. She washed her hands, drying them on her shirt, and she hustled for the door. But when she stepped out into the cold, blustery night, the ground was covered in snow. The evergreens around the visitor center were laden down. Drifts fell, knocked away by the wind. She stopped, confused. She hadn't been in there that long, not long enough for an entire snowfall. Her jean jacket was no match for the colder weather. She shivered and turned toward the car. But it was gone. The whole parking lot was gone. Kayla shook her head, wondering if she'd gotten turned around inside and came out a different door. She looked back at the visitor center. But that was gone too. She was surrounded by nothing but deep, endless woods. Kayla called out to Andy, but the only thing that answered her was the wailing wind. Everything looked the same. Just white, snowy, freezing. Through the trees, she caught a sight of a faint glow. A campfire. She hurried toward it, her mind racing. What happened? Could she have been drugged? But she didn't remember feeling ill. Kayla stepped into the clearing. It was empty, save for the fire. The trees that surrounded the space glowed orange from the flames. A movement caught her eye in one of the far trees. A pair of dirty hands appeared, gripping the trunk. Like someone was hugging the tree from behind. Kayla gasped and backed away. More hands appeared around the tree beside it. Kayla turned to see that all the trees in the clearing had disembodied arms wrapped around their trunks. Arms that were slowly followed by faces peering out at her. Their sharp cheekbones and pale skin looked at her hungrily as they stepped out from behind the trees. They wore old clothes, really old. Kayla felt a spike of anxiety in her stomach. The way they were all staring at her made her skin crawl. She told herself not to panic. It was just some weird reenactment, probably. But no one said a word. Why weren't they speaking? Kayla stammered that she was looking for the visitor center. She'd somehow gotten lost. A man stepped forward. His cheeks looked almost hollow. His mouth opened slowly, revealing blackened, stained teeth. He grabbed her wrist and pulled her toward the fire. She screamed and fell into the snow, kicking at him frantically. 
Then she felt his grip release and another hand take its place. Kayla screamed again, but when she looked up, she was staring at a woman. Her long stringy hair framed a face that once might have been pretty, but had been badly marred by grief. The woman looked angrily at the man who grabbed Kayla, muttering under her breath that women are always stuck following their men. Then she looked at Kayla, her gaunt face almost sympathetic. She was bitter as she told Kayla to go, and she said she hoped Kayla wouldn't stay with him. Kayla was on her feet in an instant. She ran through the snow. Branches tore at her face, and her breath came out in hot, misty clouds. Then her feet hit something solid, concrete. Bright lights suddenly blinded her, and she shielded her eyes. She was standing on a road. A car was idling on its shoulder. Kayla stared at it, dazed. Andy poked his head out of the driver's window, angry, and asked where she'd been. Kayla realized the woman's words still rattled around in her mind. She called out to Andy to say she wasn't going to Tahoe. She wasn't going anywhere with him again. The Donner Party never expected tragedy to befall them when they set out on their journey across the American West. They believed that they were exceptional, a part of the 19th century movement called Manifest Destiny, pioneers trailblazing territory untouched by civilized man. In truth, they were ambitious, but foolish. The supposed virgin land they traversed on their journey had been inhabited by Native Americans for generations before the Donners set foot on a trail. But to the Donners, the Native people of the American West were not people at all. And it was this dehumanization of the tribes they encountered that ultimately contributed to their demise. According to some accounts, the Washoe people who lived near the Nevada-California border where the Donner Party was trapped approached the Donners with food, but the family shot back at the tribe, even as they lay dying in the snow. The Donner Party story warns us against arrogance and ignorance. A group of families dreamed of a better life, but their overconfidence and lack of regard for the people and advice of those before them led them to a horrific end. It is said that history is often doomed to repeat itself, we struggle with the sins of the past, ignoring them rather than learning from them. But if we listen to nothing else, perhaps the words of survivor Patty Reed can stick with us. Remember, never take no cutoffs and hurry along as fast as you can. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. 
Haunted Places is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Adriana Gomez and Mickey Taylor. I'm Greg Polson. Bad omens, good fortune, pure luck. Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.